welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting-edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Welcome back to our Tech Law Talks. I'm Cynthia Dunahu in the London office, and I'm accompanied by Asel Ibrahimova in our London office as well. Hi. Hi, everyone. We're here this morning to talk about DSARs in the European Union. DSARs are data subject access requests for data. And there's been quite a lot of activity and court cases and guidance from the EU of late. Um, And so we thought we'd hit on various topics from identity verification to the scope of requests and and how to deal with third-party data and timelines. So with that, Asa, let me ask you a question. I mean, we've talked about identity verification. What, What new is there in relation to data controller trying to verify the identity of somebody who requests access to their data? Thank you, Cynthia. We have looked at a number of decisions and court cases about the identity verification that took place uh, in the last couple of years. And just as a reminder, the GDPR says that the controller should use all reasonable measures to verify the identity of a, a data subject who requests access to data. And this is pretty much supported by Uh, the decisions and court cases we've seen. In a case heard by the Berlin Administrative Court this year, a requester was asked to provide their identity documents. Uh, However, the controller already had correspondence with this data subject. And uh, the court said that there was no need to request additional information because this was necessary only where there is reasonable doubt as to the identity of the data subject. That seemed to have happened with the Austrian federal court as well, a very similar ruling. Exactly. There's something new in in the Netherlands. There was a court that found something else there. What was that? Yeah, that was an interesting case where the controller received a very wide access request and to basically address this request, they have made Uh, a multiple requests for identity documents from the data subject. The data subject actually did not respond, and the court found that this was an abusive exercise of the right because the data subject knew that by not providing the identity documents, this would prevent the controller from deciding on the request and The court also found that there were underlying circumstances around that case, which I should mention. The data subject initiated various other proceedings against the controller. And basically, the claimant was found to show bad faith and therefore was rejected the right to access. Oh, so that's interesting. We've got a number of cases where the subject that asked for access hasn't even gotten over the first hurdle, where ultimately they asked for access but refused to provide their identity. And another case where access or identity verification was considered to interfere with the right because the 
the party already knew who the person was. So obviously, even getting right at the first hurdle, whether or not you know the person and kind of verify their them and or whether you can't is quite important for a data subject access request. So obviously, let's let's say now somebody gets beyond that first hurdle. They've identified the data subject. What happens in relation to how the request is asked? What about the scope of a request? Yes, that's a question that concerns a lot of controllers. And I wonder, Cynthia, if you've seen any clarification from uh, the EU data protection authorities in that regard. Yeah, there has been some clarification, but I think before we get there, I think obviously when a company request, uh, receives a DSAR, if it's not drafted in a way that gives the controller an idea of the date range or the, the type of personal data the individual is looking to ensure is being processed lawfully, then there's an opportunity to ask the requester to reframe the request before we then even get to the court cases. There have, though, of course, been a couple of decisions, uh, one in Spain where the controller didn't handle the request within time. And obviously the GDPR allows for complex requests to be extended for up to two months. And in that particular case, it was a complex request because the individual had held various roles within a university. There were an alumni, a worker, as well as a litigant. Now, ironically, the Spanish DPA did condemn the requester for failing to clarify their request and, and found that the requester had essentially abused the right. But ultimately, the university in that case did still need to respond, and they should have done so within the normal time limit, or at least told the requester that it was going to exceed the time. There's also a, a different example in relation to scope, and that is what do you have to give to an individual when they request? You know, in, here in the UK, traditionally what's done is a copy of all the documents. The GDPR refers to a copy, but there's a case from the Netherlands uh, in March of this year which basically says that there is no obligation to provide the original documents or a copy. So in other words, you can provide excerpts of the personal data as long as it's possible to demonstrate to the individual that their data is processing, being processed lawfully. It's interesting that the scope creates quite a lot of discussion on this area about how to what is complex, what is the timeline involved, is there an appropriate channel for a request, um, is there a clarification that can be provided? So, so Asel, what about that appropriate channel? Is there any new developments in that area? As a reminder, under the GDPR, there is no uh, prescribed way of how individuals can exercise their right of access. In this uh, particular case, the Spanish DPA ordered the data subject to actually use an appropriate channel. And what it means uh, in this case is that parents have submitted a request to access educational records of their son, but the DPA uh, redirected them to basically separate out this request and send a, a written request to a DPO. And they also needed to 
accompany the request with appropriate authority to represent their son. So the case I just mentioned involves parents and their son as the main data subject. And I wanted to discuss a topic of third-party data uh, within data subject access requests. Is there any update about treating third-party data as part of DSARS? Uh, Third-party data is always a difficult one when it comes to getting a data subject access request. It is almost impossible not to find any third-party data when you do a search of systems. So under the GDPR, of course, the idea is is that if third-party data is involved, you ask for the consent. But there's a case in the Netherlands that looked at a child protection service where the names of employees were, of course, part of the files for um, the child at issue. And the controller had to consider whether to restrict the employee information and whether or not, where it's a serious case like this of of suspected child abuse, whether the employee names were personal data or really part and parcel of the services tasks and whether or not um, they could get away with mentioning a job title um, or the individual Uh, In that particular case, uh, even a job title would have disclosed who the employee was. So the disclosure of the employee names was considered lawful. There's another Dutch case, which is similar, where there was found to be no serious infringement of a mother's rights um, in relation to a data subject access request in relation to her son, again, evolving a very serious case of alleged domestic violence. The ICO has basically always held that the personal data needs to relate to the individual. um, And that's from the Durant case. And so, you know, if it's correspondence and emails between coworkers and things, that is not considered to be personal data. If it's central to be an individual being able to verify the legality of the processing of the data. But this also, Asel, brings up a really interesting question around the, the complexity and the timeline, which we t- touched on a little bit earlier. But have there been any um, penalties in relation to missed timelines for DSARs? And, and which of the uh, supervisory authorities has been particularly active? Well, uh, despite us finding ourselves in the middle of the pandemic, It seems that the data protection authorities feel that it shouldn't uh, impact organizations honoring these obligations of meeting the one-month timeline. And uh, we've seen that uh, Garante, the Italian uh, data protection authority, has been enforcing this obligation and uh, issuing fines for not meeting this timeline. And I think It would be amiss if we didn't uh, mention the ICO's newly updated guidance on DSARS and the introduction of a notion of stop the clock. It is basically, it would apply to controllers uh, that have a large amount of information uh, about a data subject or or in general, they hold a lot of uh, data and they genuinely need clarification to respond to a DSAR. So, for example, they receive a request and they might have, they, they may not know in which databases to look for the information 
they would need to identify whether the individual has been a, a customer or an employee uh, or what other relationship they might have had with the uh, controller. So in uh, cases like that, uh, controllers can actually ask for a clarification and uh, while they wait for uh, the response, they can stop the clock until the requester specifies the request. If they don't receive a response, then the controller will need to carry out reasonable searches uh, for the personal data as per usual. So, but just to remind everyone that uh, obviously due to Brexit, the ISO's guidelines will only apply to DSARS in the UK. So we've now understood the scope. Uh, we know the timelines and now prepared to respond. What about a situation where the controller actually finds that they have nothing to disclose? Would it be okay for a data controller just to give a data subject a call and say, well, actually, we haven't got anything for you. Do we have any clarification on that? Um, that's really interesting. There are, let's say, we know of several clients that have received what looks like spam-related requests where they either can't verify or turns out that they might search their systems and find nothing from the individual. And for the purposes of the accountability principle from the GDPR, it's probably best not just to give a call. It's probably best to give some form of documentary evidence that um, they don't have any data and that they have at least, you know, done the search that's necessary. And there's recently uh, a case in Italy, again, by the supervisory authority there, the Garante, where um, a verbal response was given to say that no information was found and um, that was considered inadequate. And the Garante actually fined the controller 3,000 euros. So very, very interesting indeed. And how about, you know, multiple DSARs? So let's say you have a parent company and a bunch of affiliate companies and somebody does a complete scattergram of access requests, firing one at the parent and, you know, various of the affiliates. What, what happens then? Well, it seems that in this case, all controllers must respond to the DSAR. And uh, that is despite them uh, potentially holding the same sets of personal data. Uh, they will need to respond despite the right of access having been satisfied by another controller. Again, uh, a very interesting interpretation uh, from recent decisions. Excellent. Yeah, this seems to be a summary of the most interesting uh, decisions we've seen, Cynthia. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Asil. It's been great having this little chat about DSARS. And thank you, everyone who's listening. Please join us for our next installation of Tech Law Talks. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. 
This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.